great to be back. Um, over the last six years, our family uh, has uh, taken trips to visit relatives, and we've done things together like attend family camp and uh, family retreat, uh, things that I was kind of, you know, in charge of, so to speak, you know, as like a week-long experience. Uh, but it's been since before Levi, our six-year-old, was born that we took a, a, like a, a family vacation uh, together. And, uh, and so uh, we just got back uh, from one. Uh, we, uh, we took the first part of this month and uh, our uh, seven-member family, uh, my wife and I and our five uh, kids, got in our minivan and we drove. And this is where many of you are going to get really jealous. Uh, we, uh, we drove uh, 3,100 miles round trip. New York City and back. New York City. I don't know if they've got pace there or not, but um, the boys thoroughly enjoyed eating at all of the uh, breakfast buffets and hotels we stayed in, and uh, they really liked attending the Atlanta Braves game and visiting Lady Liberty. Uh, The girls enjoyed swimming in all the swimming pools and, um, you know, touring the White House and catching a Broadway show. Um, Lindley was just happy to be there and sad to leave any place we were. Um, the word vacation is probably not the best u- word to use uh, in describing our experience, uh, especially if you were to ask Holly, because her uh, definition of uh, vacation should include beach. And uh, that's probably where we'll go next, because I don't know that we're going to get the family in a 3,100-mile adventure anytime soon. Uh, although we all survived and we all still love each other. And... Um, my kids uh, would uh, find it uh, saddened, they would be saddened if I did not share one particular experience with you, and, uh, and it has to do in a warped kind of way with tonight, um, and I'll share with you why. Uh, so we uh, were in New York City, we had driven for uh, several hours uh, from Washington, D.C. to New York City, got in our hotel, and then went out and walked along the streets, some there, and uh, decided as it was getting evening uh, to do one of the double-decker bus tour experiences around the city at night. And uh, that's something that I had not done in New York City yet, and I thought that would be fun for the family. And so we hopped on and did that experience. And it was a blast. It was a little long. It was a little too cool. I didn't have a jacket, blah, blah, blah. But at the very end of the experience, we pulled back up to where we had originally started and uh, began to exit uh, from the top of the, of the bus. And as we were exiting, uh, people were, were, were leaving, much like you would if you were leaving a plane or a bus or whatever, you know, and people getting into the aisles, the middle aisle, and then walking forward. And uh, I grabbed a hold of my son and said, hold on, wait, wait for everybody else to go, and then we can go. Uh, only to realize that my two sons were right here. I was holding on to somebody else's son. Um, panic. I thought, this father of this son is about to nail me. I mean, about to pulverize me. I apologize. Turned to Holly and my kids who were just, I mean, doing what any devoted spouse and kids would do at that point. They were hysterically laughing at me, <laughs> thinking, you know, this is, this, is, this is a beautiful moment to end our night. Uh, I apologize to him, to his father. Um, you know, we're imperfect people, right? And uh, sometimes those imperfections show up in ways that are fairly harmless and do nothing more than maybe bruise our ego a little bit. Uh, But sometimes uh, they are uh, much more difficult, right? Because they harm ourselves, harm others, harm our relationship with God. They, in fact, are sin. 
And although oftentimes we disguise it by saying, oh, that's, that's my bad, or I didn't mean to do that, or, uh, you know, this, that was just a mistake. It was just a mistake. Uh, Romans 3.23 is very clear. It says, uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, uh, you know, I, I, boy, I've, I've lived in that today. I, I have disappointed people today. Um, I, I have disappointed uh, myself today in the way that I reacted in one particular situation. And, and probably each one of us could go through and sit down and go, yeah, I, I did that. I did something else today. We're about to jump into Exodus chapter 20. Uh, and I, I told Jay earlier, uh, talk about mistakes, you know, I, I told Jay, I said, listen, okay, here's what we're going to do. If you could do that, that'd be great. I haven't had time to get in touch with you just to kind of talk through the whole and I, and I said, and, 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 if you, and if you get them to create this list, because I'm going to be talking about the Ten Commandments in a couple of weeks. And I said a couple of weeks, and in my mind, I'm thinking a couple of minutes. And so Jay said what I told him, but actually we're going to talk about Ten Commandments now, not in a couple of weeks. Ten Commandments were more than just ten good rules to help us do right things. They were a written version of a verbal commitment, a verbal covenant that had been made by God years earlier to Abraham. The Ten Commands, or Decalogue, name, the name given by the Greeks, was also referred to as the Tables of Testimony because they were a testimony to the world of what this covenant was between God and his people. These Ten Commandments were given to point to the reality that we are created to be in relationship As we'll discover in the first four that we look at today, these focus in on our relationship to God. But then the final six focus in on our relationships that we have with others. You see, within the context of these Ten Commandments, we find it's all about relationship. They also point us to the true character and attributes of God. They point us to a God who is holy, a God who is true. And as we begin to unpack that more and more, what it reveals about us is that we are a needy people. It reveals who we are and not just the fact that we grab another parent's child by mistake. But because we are born with this sinful, self-destructive mentality and we make choices that hurt those around us all the time. We make choices that not only hurt ourselves, but hurt others and destroy the body that God has given us and separate us from our holy and awesome creator God. I would encourage you to turn in the book of Exodus if you have it at this time, maybe on your phone, uh, maybe you're using version. We're going to go into chapter 20 in a moment, but as we move that direction, just a thought. The Ten Commandments was not just some legalistic code for the world. Keeping the Ten Commandments meant more than just obeying the law. It was actually synonymous with keeping the covenant with God. Practicing this life of obedience was demonstrating that we were loyal and dedicated to God and faithfully believing in what His promises were, even the promise of salvation to come that would eventually come through His Son, Jesus Christ. It was huge. And as we jump into chapter 20, and as we read it, we begin to open up with what could arguably be stated as the very first constitution. I mean, we we saw that too. We saw a lot of stuff. We saw the monuments. We went to the National Archives, and we saw 
the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence and the, the Constitution. The Constitution. It was this legal, binding, supreme law of our land set up, right? And it was set up in a way that all the other regulatory laws would fall in line underneath it. They would all be attached to it for their understanding. Makes sense that the Ten Commandments really for the people would operate in much the same way. And as we jump into chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, we could even state that this, in a sense, was the Ten Commandments preamble. You know the preamble, we the people of the United States. And this is where those of you who grew up in the 70s with Schoolhouse Rock, the, the, the song starts to go into your brain. In order to form a more perfect union, establish justice and ensure domestic tranquility. Everybody sing along. Okay, maybe not, but you could do it. I know you could. And so this whole preamble that we understand as our preamble to the Constitution sets up what the document is to become, what it is going to be, who it is for. And in a sense, likewise, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then comes the Constitution. Then comes the expectations. Number three, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those. And this is a, actually not a great uh, translation of this particular verse. This is actually to the thousandth generation. Okay, So it's like if you were to say to the generations and then you put to the, th- in, to the thousandth, In other words, on and on and on and on and on and on and on, for as far as we can possibly see, he's going to keep on loving with this steadfast love. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And this is where we stop in the commandments for this evening. Because as I mentioned, the first ten commandments can be divided into two parts. The part guided by really Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. The relationship that we have with our creator God. And then the following six, really guided by Leviticus nineteen eighteen, And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus stated both of these, right? Let's jump into the first one. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. He's saying here, I, we are created to live for who? For God alone. Some have argued, well, why why didn't God just say, um, I'm the only God? Why did he say it that way? You shall have no other gods before me. Why did he do that? Well, because in their culture, in their context, there was a lot of supernatural activity taking place. Most definitely, just as it happens also 
in a variety of places in our world today. A third of heaven was emptied when Lucifer and his crew were cast out. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, it describes Satan as what? As masquerading as an angel of light. The Israelites would be confronted with a variety of gods worshipped by a variety of people groups. And Yahweh was letting them know, listen, up front, you are created to worship. And you are created to worship me. To live for him alone. It's in our DNA to worship. God created us. He knows that. He knew that from the very beginning. Within the covenant, he reminds us, really, it's all about him. From the very beginning, as he states in number one commandment, it's really all about him. And God knew, obviously, as I mentioned, that they were going to come into contact with a variety of different little g-gods with varying aspects of supernatural activity associated around them. Because there is a supernatural war that is being fought around our globe and has been since the beginning. God was well aware that idolatry existed all around them as well. If you were to go into Webster's Dictionary and look at the definition of the word idolatry, it says the worship of idols or excessive devotion to or reverence for some person or thing. Biblically, what we understand as being an idol is anything that replaces the one true God. The most prevalent form of idolatry in biblical times was the worship of images that were thought to actually embody the various pagan deities. And there are definitely, even as we will look at this list, some similarities. Some similarities between the idolatry of yesterday and the idolatry that we see of today. The first one that I threw up on the board there for you is cultural. Idolatry was the norm. If you ask a Canaanite farmer to talk about farming, you know what he would talk about? He would talk about sacrifices to Baal. You say, well, what does that have to do with farming? Well, he believed that if he gave sacrifices to Baal, then what would happen is that his farming would be fertile. You see, it was all interwoven. It was the norm. Expressing excessive devotion to someone or something is found everywhere in our culture as well. The laundry list is long regarding what we spend large amounts of our time and our energy and our money to. And it would only make sense then that the places that we do spend the most time and the most money are really those things that we really worship the most with our lives. Reciprocal. Another aspect of idolatry. It's the expectation that this relationship to this deity is really quid pro quo. In other words, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I bless you, I worship you, you bless my crop. And in our culture, we invest in a lot of things and expect return, right? We expect return on so very much that we put our money and our time into. Well, As we look and even drag this thinking into our relationship with God and the church, 
we can so easily move into the, well, I'm going to do these things and I'm going to make sure that I'm in church this many times because at the end of the day, if I do that, God's going to be happier with me. He's going to love me more. And it's easy, even in our 21st century Christianity, to get into this quid pro quo mindset of, you know what, I scratch God's back and he'll in turn scratch mine. And we see that even played out at a grander scale when we begin to see health and wealth, prosperity teaching. Easy. Idol worship was just easy. You know what it required? It required sacrifice. But you know what? That's easy. You say, sacrifice is easy? Yeah, boom, done. We sacrifice all the time. We sacrifice for our kids. We sacrifice money. We sacrifice our energy. We sacrifice for things that we care most about. You know what? That's easy. But here comes this invisible God who shows up and in front of everyone says, Hey, listen. To obey is better than sacrifice. Why? Obedience, that's transformation of my life in a way that it begins to resemble the Son of God who walked on this earth in a countercultural kind of way. That's a whole lot more challenging, isn't it? Than to just sacrifice. I can sacrifice all day long, but if I have to obey and that pushes me into our culture counterculturally, and it was going to do that with the Israelites. Indulgent. Idol worship was characterized by excess. As a matter of fact, as a part of their worship, one of their responsibilities was to burn up some of the meat for their idol. But then they weren't supposed to leave any of it. In other words, eat up. Pigging out was a part of worship. You say, I thought that was Baptist. I get it. I understand. But you know what? They were living in this excess. In our culture, we've worked hard to erase the boundary lines, haven't we? We've worked hard to make sure that excess is acceptable and appropriate. As a matter of fact, for those of us in this room who possibly still try to live within the boundary lines that God has put before us, we start to be called things like prudish. We start to begin to see the separation between maybe our kids and other people's kids, between the choices that some make and others make in our culture. Well, why wouldn't you let your kid watch that? Well, why wouldn't you do that? And the truth is we're not called to be the Holy Spirit for anyone, right? But as we, as a culture, begin to draw new lines... Unfortunately, our culture doesn't draw those lines based on the character of our Almighty God. They draw those lines based on our bias and our feelings and our thoughts. And then we turn around and as a culture, all of a sudden we realize, well, maybe life really isn't that sacred. 
And maybe marriage should be redefined. Indulgence. And the indulgence of our culture has a variety of unintended consequences. Erotic. Pagan worshipers believe that having sex with temple prostitutes would then stimulate Baal and Asherah to have sex up in the heavens. And then that in turn would bring fertility on land. Both in gardens and on farms and with their cattle and livestock. Their worship was highly sexualized. And you know what? So is ours. How our culture worships. What we value the most. In our culture, sex is not only sold, but it's also the way in which everything else is sold. Although they were known by other names 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, even today, Baal and Asherah are actually alive and well in our culture. Cultural, reciprocal, easy, indulgent, erotic, all aspects of idol worship that were just as prevalent yesterday, thousands of years ago as they are now. And so commandment one, worship God, period, it goes counterculture to today's society in much the same as it did. Especially for a group of nomadic Hebrew God followers who were following this supernatural, miracle-working, invisible God that wanted to just transform them by their obedience. Not just to see them dutifully attached to some set of do's and don'ts. That's not what this is. Number two. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. This one's interesting because we often kind of avoid this commandment simply because we think it doesn't really apply to us. As a matter of fact, we often look at this commandment and even in sermons that I've listened to and read, we speak about that one as it relates to idolatry, when really it's the first one that has the most impact on idolatry. This specifically has to do with who and how I worship, because that matters to God. You see, the attractions of idol worship were really very intense for the Israelites. I mean, just look back at that list. God is letting them know that with this commandment, they could, with this commandment, that they could so easily get caught up in a lifestyle of worship that takes them 180 degrees from what God had intended. Within this commandment, he also reminds us how easy it is to pass down our worship lifestyle from one generation to the next. It could go to the third and to the fourth generation. And if we're not careful, we can set the pace incorrectly for how our children worship. Because they're watching. Because they're learning. Because those little bodies that went out that door observe how we interact with God. And how we experience that communion with Him in our homes and in this place, and on our knees, 
and with our arms lifted high. You see, it does move from the next generation to the next. But here's what's beautiful. He says, listen, because of who I am, I'm going to love you. And I'm going to love you with this steadfast love. And he uses a word there, it's chesed. And the beautiful aspect of this particular Hebrew word is that it's this, this loyalty love. It's this love that, here, here's what fuels the loyalty. You ready for this? It is a grace-fueled love. In other words, go back to Romans 3.23. We've all sinned. We've all screwed up. We're all screw-ups. Now here's the beauty. God loves us. How long? Not just to the third and the fourth generation, but for this thousandth generation, on and on and on and on, with this steadfast, chested love that is fueled by grace. Now, I don't know about you, but that's good news to my heart tonight. I need that. He's not going to stop loving us. He's saying in this one, worship God alone. And you're not to allow the ways in which this world worships or who this world worships to influence you. Jesus puts an exclamation point on that in John chapter 4 when in the conversation with the woman at the well, he says he speaks about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And so in that, it's not so much what happens exactly with this stage or what happens in this particular moment, but it's the fact that in my life, I'm going to be so in tune with what the Holy Spirit is doing in me. And I'm going to be so in tune with what His Word is speaking to me that as I allow those things to interact with my life and I obey in my obedience, I begin to become transformed. And so within that context, he says, that's what real worship is. Don't lose sight of it. We can get so caught up in the stuff of worship. Here's here's commandment two. Ready for it? It's so very simple. Don't get so caught up in the stuff of worship that you miss God. Don't get so caught up in the stuff. That's why he didn't want us to be worshiping an image focus on him well then he moves us into three you shall not take the name of the lord your god in vain he's saying with this one how we treat his name matters why his name represents his character his name represents his reputation his name represents who he is It represents him, and to some degree, even today, parents can feel a great deal of pressure when naming their kids. They want to get it right, you know? Funny thing about naming, we were, when we were in Cuba last month, um, we were talking with uh, some of the Cuban church leaders there, and they said, you know one of the names that has become really commonplace in our culture over the last, uh, I think they said like 10 years, they said uh, one of the common Cuban names that's shown up again and again is uh, Yusnavi, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's given to both men and uh, little baby girls and uh, baby boys, Yusnavi. And we were like, why that? And they said, well, you're going to find this really funny, but it's all because of Guantanamo Bay. They said the airplanes fly in, and it says U.S. Navy on it. And, and they've taken that and named their children Yusnavi. 
<laughs> what does a name for a child mean? You know, it's 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 militaristic. Okay, for for in that moment, it, it, you know, whatever. A name can mean a lot. Today, when your name is spoken, what comes to people's minds? Oh, that, ah, oh yeah, he's so funny. Ah, she is so loving. They are so hospitable. What a, what a great couple. How kind. What a jerk. <laughs> our words represent our heart, though. Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure, or treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Here's what God is saying in this particular commandment. He's saying, listen, how you treat my name speaks to who you are and the value I am to you. So how is his name misused? You know, one of the ways I believe his name is misused is, is just when we insult him, when we profane him, when we treat that which is sacred as irreverent. When speaking about this verse to students, I would say, you know, sometimes you hear in songs, in lyrics, on shows, GD, and we just allow that to just kind of roll over us like, oh yeah, it's too bad they're saying that. When the truth is, when God damns something to hell, that's awful. Matter of fact, he's grieved by that. As a matter of fact, for us to even say that something is as hot as hell or cold as hell or smart as hell, which I still can't figure that one out. We may not be able to put this online later, I don't God painfully grieves those who reject him and live for an eternity without him. The name of Jesus, how we use it. When we indulge ourselves, when we attach God to something that we want to do and we use his name as justification, even though he really hasn't. You say, well, when does that ever happen? Have you ever experienced a marriage counseling experience? See, I have, and I've heard people say, you know, God wants me too, and I just want to be so very careful. Okay, hold on, wait a minute, let's, let's go back and, and work through this. And is there moments that divorce can occur, and, 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 and God is in that moment with grace and mercy, understanding, okay, I get that, but, you know, we've got to be very careful how we attach God to things. When we use him as an exclamation point. And I admit this can get embedded into our culture. I remember speaking about this one time. We were in the south. I was in Baton Rouge. And um, I mean, it was, it was commonplace for basically every pastor on staff and most people in the church to use Lord attached to most any phrase. <laughs> and I was so hesitant to even say this, but I, I, I finally got up enough guts, I guess. And I just said, listen, I'm just thinking maybe we shouldn't reduce God to the level of wow or cool or too bad. I'm not thinking he's too fond of being reduced to an exclamation point. 
His name is to be honored. And how do we honor his name? It's when we act on what he says, right? When I sincerely react to God's word and I treat it as valuable and it becomes the trump card to every other opinion that comes across the landscape of my life. Here's here's an incorrect way to do it. You ready? It's Ezekiel 33. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the, Lord, what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. And behold, ready for this, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice. And plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. That's the antithesis of honoring his name. It's it's like, you know, we so so we took the girls to the musical on Broadway, and it was beautiful, it was big, it was fun. And we walked out, but we weren't changed. We weren't changed by that musical. It was a moment. Our ears were tickled. And oftentimes, we come into even a corporate worship experience and just allow our ears to be tickled because the song sounded so good. Well, they did my favorite worship song, you know. I love Oceans. I mean, I know it's 12 minutes long, but I just love that song. His name is also honored when we represent him in a way that brings him glory. It's very simply just saying, am I a little cross? Am I a little Christ? Am I in my walk and witness showing him off? And whether or not you're a pastor or not, there's times obviously that we fail and succeed in this. And I go back again to the second commandment paragraph with his steadfast love pouring over us. 2 Timothy 2.19 But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That is honoring his name. Matthew 5.16 In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is honoring his name. That's showing him off. I have a friend of mine. His name's Michael Holt. I love being around Michael because when he would speak about God and use God's name, his voice changed. And I asked him one time, I said, Michael, why, why is it whenever you talk about God that you do that? And he said, I'm not trying to make fun. I just... I just want it to mean so much more to me. Who we worship matters. How we worship matters. How we treat his name matters. And finally, number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You know what this involves? This involves constantly calibrating my life. Because we just have to do it. Our world is 90 to nothing. Am I providing a place and space for that recalibration to occur?
God modeled it, not because he was tired, but because rest is good and right. And we're created for it. And we don't get enough of it. And although we don't have enough time tonight to see what a variety of theologians have written on this subject, could we just ask ourselves this question about this commandment? Have we created a constant space in our life to refocus? To remember who we are and who he is and what it means to follow him. This week, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to read back through the first four. And when you do, just listen to his words. Rediscover what it means to honor him with all that you are. Because that's worship. And then do what every shampoo bottle in all of our showers says to do. Rinse and repeat. Remember. And keep remembering. And keep remembering. And whether it takes us 10 15, 20 times this week reading back over that we are to worship him, that our worship matters and how we worship him matters and how we treat his name matters. Then we begin to recalibrate our lives in his direction, at his pace, with his guidance. You know, every day, We travel on a bus of this world with culture grabbing onto our shoulders and trying to push us this way or hold us back. What we have to do is say, you know what? (laughs) You're not my father. I know who my father is. I'm with him. Father, we love you so much. And God, even in this moment, what my prayer is, is that we could just remember whose child we are. But God, it's about us finding your heart. And so God, in this moment, may we wipe the culture off of our shoulders and remember whose child we are. God, even as we sing Hosanna to you, may our worship fill this place. God, as we take communion in a moment, God, as we give in the back, as we interact with you in whatever way that we do over the next several minutes, God, may our worship be a pleasing sacrifice, a pleasing aroma to you, the one true God who deserves all our praise. As we sing to you, God, in this moment.